Hey, 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 Lions of Liberty fans, this is Felony Friday host John Odermatt. Before we jump into today's show, I got an awesome show lined up for you today. You're going to love it. But before we do that, I want to talk to you about a free market alternative to your standard government-run, government-manipulated, government-regulated medical insurance. Now, this is obviously the open enrollment period that a lot of people, if you have your corporate job, you're picking your health insurance, you're setting up your HSA for next year and all that stuff. Well, there's an alternative to that. And it's great for, you know, if you have a regular corporate job, if you're an entrepreneur, maybe you're a uh, contract worker or something like that. It's a flexible option. It's called Health Excellence Plus. And Mark Clare, of Lions of Liberty, the host of our Monday show, recently interviewed the co-founder of Health Excellence Plus. His name's Jeff Cantor. And in this interview, Jeff goes into detail and spells out exactly what it is, how it works. It's an awesome description of this free market alternative to this government health care. So you can check that out at lionsofliberty.com slash health. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. And if there's any new listeners out there, the show you're tuning into, it uh, focuses entirely on the criminal justice system in different ways. From time to time, I'll bring on uh, felons, uh, formerly incarcerated individuals who have been through the system. I'll bring on experts in different fields. And today's show is the latter. I'm bringing on the foremost, one of the foremost experts in the United States on forensic DNA, genealogy. Uh, He's the founder of the Idaho Innocence Project. I will introduce him in just a minute, but I got an extremely fascinating show for you guys today. The show notes page for today's show can be found at lionsofliberty.com slash FF203. And to be sure you don't miss a single episode of this show, Felony Friday, or the other two shows on this podcast feed, our Monday show, our flagship program hosted by Mark Clare, where Mark interviews leaders in the liberty movement, or our Wednesday show, Electric Liberty Land, hosted by Brian McWilliams, which is a current event show focused on uh, comedy, culture, and, of course, liberty. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Get all three of these awesome shows in your feed. Life is good as long as you do that. Let's not waste any more time and get into today's show. My guest today on Felony Friday is Dr. Greg Hampikian. Dr. Hampikian is a biologist and founder and director of the Idaho Innocence Project. He is considered one of the foremost experts, foremost forensic DNA experts in the United States. Uh, His education, he has a BS from the University of Connecticut in Biology an MS, University of Connecticut in Genetics, a PhD from the University of Connecticut in Genetics, and a uh, postdoctorate associate from uh, Worcester Foundation for Experimental Biology. 
He is currently the professor of biology and criminal justice at Boise State University. And as I said, the director of the Idaho Innocence Project, Dr. Hampikian, welcome to Felony Friday. Thanks. Well, it's been great to uh, it's great to finally speak with you and have you on the show. We've uh, we've had some back and forth trying to connect our schedules. I know that you have a lot going on, and uh, that's one of the reasons that uh, that I want to talk to you because you're so involved with uh, so many important cases uh, with the Innocence right. Project across the United States. I'm at the point of like uh, of a little bit of uh, you know memory struggle as I age, and people think I've gotten more important. That's not it. I just have a more difficult time remembering appointments. So thank you for your patience, and uh, uh, and thanks for doing the show. It's great. Uh, no, no problem. It's my pleasure to get to speak with you. And I want. I mean, there's one story that really connected us. I had a, a fan of the show reach out uh, a case that that you work closely on. Uh, Chris Tapp, who did 20 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. We'll talk about that um, in a bit here. Before we go down that road, though, um, just to sort of set the stage, and, and I'm curious to know, how did this all start? How did you get, what motivated you, what inspired you to uh, to go down this path into uh, genetics and biology? And Yeah, it's all, it's all um, well, genetics and biology was because my dad was a physicist and I couldn't do the math, <laughs> and I wanted to be a a writer, uh, and then a lawyer. And I came home one day and told him that my sophomore year, and he uh, stopped talking to me for, I don't know, an hour maybe. <laughs> and, uh, and that was enough because I respected him, and so I knew I should do something in science. And uh, biology is so much like art. Uh, it is so so many marvelous and beautiful details, and almost all of it is accessible visually. You can draw a diagram of almost anything in biology. It's not like quantum physics. Uh, so I fell in love with biology, and molecular biology seemed to be hard, so I wanted to do something challenging. And, um, and then you know, the world opened up in the 1980s when I started uh, uh, my college career, and um, you could suddenly have a gene in a bottle, you know, Mendel's mystery was figured out in chemical form. It was just so amazing to be part of that, even as an undergraduate, let alone mm -hmm. then graduate, postdoc and such. So um, after I got out, a number of the people I worked with in my graduate lab, where I was a PhD uh, student in at the University of Connecticut, Linda Straussbaum's lab, wonderful fruit fly lab. And Linda got involved with forensics with Henry Lee down the road at the crime lab. Uh, uh, and um, Henry, Henry wanted to start applying DNA to casework in the early 1980s. So Linda was one of the people who helped uh, work with him. And I had a grant to do some of that I wrote as a, as a graduate student. Anyway, Three of the four people from the lab who were there when I graduated went into forensics and worked in Henry's lab from fruit flies. And so I became interested. I went and worked in Australia on marsupial sex determination, trying to understand uh, how mammalian, how mammals determine sex. What is the testis determining factor and how does it work? Worked with some amazing people who changed a female mouse into a male mouse at the blastocyst level and came back. And my friends in forensics were interested in that male DNA because, let's face it, 
um, most of the violent crimes in America, almost all of the violent sexual crimes in America and everywhere else are committed by males. Mm-hmm. And so it became essential to identify male DNA in a mixture where there might be a lot of female DNA. And they thought maybe we could use the stuff I worked on. So I started talking with them, consulting lightly. I visited the crime lab. Uh, it was all very exciting. Um, and the, it was the stories. And then a man was freed from prison, Calvin Johnson, when I was teaching at a small college in Georgia, Clayton College and State University, it's now called. And he was, he um, lived close by, and I heard him on the radio saying, you know, uh, that he had been in prison for 17 years. DNA got him out. And I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah. Right here in my neighborhood. So I asked uh, my colleague uh, who was in charge of inviting speakers to invite him, and he came. I mean, he was fresh out of prison. He came. I'm, I'll, I'll never forget because we went out to lunch, and he didn't know how to operate a menu at a Chinese restaurant. I mean, it was hard to make decisions. And that, and I find that with a lot of folks who've been incarcerated. So, uh, but we, I, I, you know, uh, immediately had a, a, a guy crush on Calvin Johnson. He was what I wanted to be. He had forgiven everybody. He was jovial. Uh, he could tell a story, you know, just fantastic, funny, and uh, had a great voice. And so as he was talking to the students at Clayton State, I wrote chapter one of his book. I just sat down and wrote what he was saying about being this college graduate falsely convicted of rape in a swamp in southern Georgia with a with a what he called armor-plated rat that swam by. It was an armadillo. He had no idea what it was. He thought it was coming to bite him. And uh, so anyway, I just thought he was great. Wrote the book together. And then I started getting cases. People would send me cases. And um, eventually somebody sent me a paid case and said, you should charge money or no one will take you seriously. And I thought, well, I'm not good enough yet. And eventually I got good enough became a consultant, and then tried to help start the Georgia Innocence Project that some students had organized, and went and met Barry Sheck and interviewed him, and Peter Newfeld, who worked on Calvin's case, the founders of the Innocence Project. Mm-hmm. And we opened a chapter in Georgia. I'm still emeritus on the board. I still do their uh, DNA work. And, um, it, you know, it, but really, if I think about it, it was the stories, being a being part of those stories. We all are captivated by murder and rape, and some of us are further captivated by the story of innocent people mm-hmm. basically kidnapped by the state, right? Like right. falsely incriminated. Jean Valjean, you know, the, the, the story, sorry, in uh, Le Miserable, the study of the, the Count de Monte Cristo. Um, so I, I got very involved through story. I think, but the science was my end and the fruit flies prepared me well. <laughs> science yeah, is science. You know? That's, that's, uh, I mean, that, that's the same thing that pulls me in is the stories, the, the emotional aspect yeah. of it. Um, that's, that's so, so influential. And, uh, yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting to be able to be pulled in by the stories and then being able to apply science to be able to, to bring justice. So that's, well, yeah. And I, you know, and I encourage anybody who's listening, who is moved by the stories who then wants to go further and become a part of the stories, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the next thing. And when you're, when you're fresh in this, when you start in this kind of exciting work, uh, I, I think, you know, you want to be part of the story very badly. And I certainly did. Uh, and then after a while you get good at this 
and it becomes a responsibility and you bring other people in and, um, uh, and there's a difference between new people and people who've been around for a while and you start to experience that. Uh, but I would just say if you're young, like, and you want to set your mind or even what is young, if you're am- ambitious and can give 10 years, not of your whole life, 10 years of a reasonable amount of time, like what you, you, what you do, you become an expert, that you can become an expert in these things. Um, uh, so become part of the story. Or if you just want to listen, then listen in by all means. <laughs> listen, listen and at least share the stories. That's, that's yeah. something too. Uh, I'm curious Let's start talking about the story of uh, of Chris Tapp. And you just you said that he was just on Forty Eight Hours. Is that, yes, is that Saturday. Right? I watched it uh, yesterday, a, a little late, but um, and they used some footage that they shot in uh, my lab uh, three years ago, I guess, or so. Okay. Uh, and um, uh, I thought it was a good story, the Forty Eight Hours story that they focused on the genealogy aspect. You know, nobody can do justice to these stories, um, uh, but I thought they did a pretty a pretty good job. I was just cleaning out files a, a few minutes before the interview and found this um, picture that my staff had made of the crime scene of, of poor Angie Dodge's uh, murder scene, mm-hmm. and. Um, on there, it was like cartoon stick figures, and they have all the evidence samples, what was tested, what was not yet tested. They had a little frowny face on, like, you know, we need to test this, we have to push this. Anyway, Chris wrote us, uh, gosh, it was back in uh, 2007 when we took his case, and um, we focused on the, the DNA side of things. So there were a lot of people who worked on this case and have done different things. Uh, I... I I have to say that our involvement in the DNA and um, going forward, writing the motion for DNA testing that was eventually used to get him into court was our uh, chief contribution. And Mm -hmm. to do that, we spent a good part of um, our grants and our donations, which were, you know, four or $500,000, I guess. So a good part of that was focused on Chris's case, hiring lawyers. We had four different lawyers over the more than 10 years we worked, 12 years we worked on it. And, um, but my part of it was, was DNA. So I direct the project, I write the grants, I get money in, uh, and then I hire lawyers who do the, mm-hmm. all of the wonderful hard work. And, and our lawyer, um, Jared Hoskins, was the lawyer who worked most on this and wrote Chris's petition that got him into court, got him free. But we, we can talk about that process. Yeah. Just explaining, I hope, that this is a long process that involved a lot of people. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm happy to talk about our organization. I'm not saying we did all the, the heavy lifting. But the DNA work, uh, uh, getting him into court, changing the law in Idaho so that he had a chance to get him into court, that was the Idaho Innocence Project. Yeah, just to give listeners an idea, so in 1997 was when um, – the, the the crime occurred, um, and Christopher was coerced into a, a false confession. The, the, I should say the the rape and murder of of Angie Dodge. Um, so he was in prison ninety seven until two thousand seven, and then that's 2017. when seventeen two thousand seventeen right. But uh, but it, it was until two thousand seven when the he innocence right. Yeah, so he had a a series of, uh, he had had a a few lawyers, and um, one of those uh, lawyers, Sarah Thomas, who um, Chris and I had lunch with recently, anyway, she was at the state appellate 
public defender's office. So Chris had already been in prison several years, and she gets the case for his appeal. And at the same time, uh, this is 2007, I have a, uh, she's completed that case and lost it. I have a student working for me, Ginny Hatch, who was an amazing student, now a investigator with the Federal Defenders here in Idaho. Anyway, she was sent to investigate a case and talk to Sarah Thomas, the attorney over there. And Sarah said, well, you know which case you really ought to look at? Christopher Tapp. Hmm. And so Jenny called me and said, she says we should look at Christopher Tapp. I said, well, Christopher's written us. There was DNA in his case. They had DNA before trial, and it excluded him. I I don't know what we could do for him. Like, he's already excluded by DNA. But if if Sarah says to look at it, we're going to look at it. And so there were 30-something hours of interrogation tapes, which I assigned to Ginny because I didn't have 30 hours to watch them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I gave her a rubric of things I wanted her to, to follow. And she went through and she called me, you know, three-quarters of the way through or something, uh, very upset, uh, saying they're feeding him all the information. He, mm-hmm. he starts out denying everything. Every time they feed him something, they, they offer him an immunity deal if he'll just repeat after them. And that's the way that I saw that interrogation. And it gets absurd when we finally get the tape to watch the tape where he's hooked up to a polygraph across his chest. Mm-hmm. Now, when you do a polygraph, you're supposed to relax the person, give them all the questions ahead of time, uh, you know, tell them that, uh, you know, they need to be called before you start and you establish a rapport. I know an FBI polygrapher who spends like you know, half a day with people before he right. starts. And um, what they did with Chris is they strap him in. At one point, they tell him he's going to go to the gas chamber during his polygraph, right? A 19-year-old guy. And uh, it's all, you know, it's all available. The Judges for Justice website, which became, the Judges for Justice became involved in his case. They have uh, a really great summary of the interrogation tape. Also, you know, I don't want to plug anybody's show, but I'll, I'll say that, um, uh, there's a show called Wrong Man on Stars Network sure. that I think did a great job with that. And also Dateline, I think, did a great job with showing excerpts of the polygraph. But the, the Stars Network one really shows a lot of it. And then the website that judges for justice. And um, you can just watch it and see what's going on. It's pretty clear. And Charles Hans, who's a polygrapher here on faculty, uh, uh, had said that basically what they did was the polygraphy um, uh, equivalent of a rubber hose, you know, beating him. And you think about it, you tell somebody you're going to kill him, uh, how, what are they going to tell you? They'll tell you anything you want. Right. And that's what happened. So they just asked Chris to implicate a friend of his, Ben Hobbs, and then he'd get full immunity. And they had ev- evidence, they said, that Ben was... Uh, associated with the crime. And actually, I think the only evidence was he had been convicted of a, a crime against a woman in a neighboring state. And uh, there were some similarities, but you know, it wasn't a murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I don't know, I don't know what they thought was so parallel. Um, but so Chris implicated him and then they test the DNA. There's, you know, in my, that diagram I was looking at today, there's semen in several places, clothing on the body, Etc. And this this woman, you know, was killed, found uh, partially nude, and um, that semen excludes Chris Tapp and the friend that he had implicated. 
So they come back to Chris and they're like, you lied to us. And Chris is like, I told you what you told me. And he's, they, they get mad because he lied and followed their, he was, he was coerced into confessing. And, <laughs> oh, it's just, you know, it would be comic except it's so tragic. And, and uh, so, so then Chris is like, well, what, who do you think did it? You know, like he's asking them again and they're like, well, you know, they mentioned some other names. So Chris tries to give him other names. Chris ends up turning in everybody in, you know, his graduating class practically. And I don't mean, um, uh, I, don't, I don't mean that literally, but I mean, I mean, they feed him names, he feeds them back. Mm-hmm. And this goes on even, you know, while he's in prison, when he's trying to get out of prison, he thinks he, he got, uh, 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 you know, the real killer. And um, uh, he'll, talk to the police and say, uh, I heard him, you know, he hears in prison that somebody might have done it. He gives that name to the police. Anyway, all of this made it very difficult for us because DNA was what we thought we would use to get people out of prison. But um, we developed a strategy, and the strategy was to get every piece of evidence that might have DNA on it from that crime scene tested to see whether, as we believed, it would all be the same man, not Christopher Tapp. Mm-hmm. And we focused on elements that were involved in Tapp's confession. Uh, and so there were several things, pubic hairs left on the body, uh, stains on her clothing. And during the interrogation, they have Chris say he handled her teddy bear, you know, that was found beside her body in her bedroom. Well, all this stuff and held her down. So we eventually wanted her... her uh, uh, swabs from her hands to show that you know he was supposedly holding her down with his hand with the hands, and year after year we got more and more of this stuff tested, uh, mostly by talking to the police uh, and talking to Angie Dust. So well, the prosecutors fought us on everything; didn't want anything tested. Fought us in the courts, made it very expensive and very hard to get simple DNA testing, uh, which I which I hold against them. I think that was uh, an obstruction. Uh, the uh, the police, uh, when urged by the victim's mother, Carol Dodge, to do whatever it was we requested, we got it tested. You know, uh, they wouldn't share the results with us very quickly, but, um, you know, the things I want tested was the pubic hair. So I told them how they could have it tested for free by the FBI because they said it was a broken hair, not, not a root. You know, it was a uh, hair without a root. Turns out it had a root, so the lab here in Idaho did it. And guess what? It matches the semen, excludes Chris Tapp and everybody who's ever been named associated with the crime. So that was the second piece. Then we had another strategy, which was we were going to go to court to get all this done quicker. Mm -hmm. And so to do that, we were going to use the Idaho DNA testing statute, which had been approved in 2004, I think, or 2003. And um, however, unbeknownst to the the original sponsor of the bill, Something had been added to it which said you have one year, 364 days from the time you're convicted to get any DNA testing done, which is absurd. Wow. Your first year in prison is all about survival. You're not mm-hmm. collecting DNA, for God's sakes. And um, so we spent, uh, Rick Visser was the lawyer that uh, I had hired through the project. He was very dedicated. And one of the things he did in Chris's case was to get that law changed. And it took us, I think, four or five years. And um, uh, 
Uh, so we got the law changed. That was an uphill battle. The Prosecutor Association fought us on that. And they were able to change it retroactively as well. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. yeah. So huge. it now says at any time, if you have DNA or fingerprint evidence that proves your innocence, you have a right to test. It. However, you often have to go to court to exert that right if the mm-hmm. prosecutor blocks it as he did in our case. So anyway, we uh, crafted a motion to get DNA testing done on a, a number of items. And um, that, that um, motion languished a bit uh, because Jared Hoskins, who wrote it, uh, we lost funding so he couldn't work with us. We started working with The Innocence Project in New York. They were going to rewrite that motion. It took, all of it took some time. And then what happened was um, another part of our strategy was that um, – uh, with Rick Visser, um, we came up with the idea of why don't we treat this semen, this is in you know, 2009 we started doing this, why don't we treat this semen as an um, adopted child looking for its birth parent? How would that happen? What would you do? And so one of the tools that was available at that time where there were all these surname projects, last name projects, and so through Ancestry.com, et cetera, you could get in touch with all the Harrisons or Smiths or Hampikians. Um, and you send your DNA. If you're a male, you have to be a male. You send your DNA. They look at the Y chromosome that only males have. And the other thing that males give to children is their last names. And so they co-track. And um, this was being used for genealogy. It had been used to show that Sally Hemings gave birth to one of Thomas Jefferson's children. Uh, and it, it was it was pretty robust, but the databases were mostly um, locked down for living people. Not all the living people wanted their names out there in Webland in 2008. So we explained to the police at Idaho Falls um, how you could use this type of either family linkage or genealogy linkage to try to find the last name of this person. And we trained them uh, in the lab, uh, uh, actually did it over the phone and computers, uh, and um, uh, showed them how to do this. And um, uh, it was a long, long drawn-out process, and I showed them some examples that I could do from the partial DNA profile I had. And I said, look, if you get a Y-chromosome test, a modern one, more than the crime lab does, crime lab was only looking at 15 or 16 sites on the Y-chromosome. The genealogist had up to 200. And, I, and that would give us a, a much better match and would eliminate a lot of coincidences. For some reason, they went to a 35 location test in the white chromosome. I'm never sure why that happened. I haven't found out why that happened. And what they did is they found... So just, yeah. just, a, just a quick... No, I'm sorry. Right? I am like making no, no sense. No, it's, 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 it's so interesting. Um, just erase the whole thing. We'll start <laughs> no. So, the, so the, the more, as you're saying, 35 instances of, on the gene, is it the more that you get, the, the better, the more specific you're able to, yes, to be? Yes, the same, same reason the Powerball gets you more money. <clears throat> it's harder to match. Okay. And so while you might have you know, part of my phone number on a slip of paper, as you get more and more numbers, well, it becomes more and more certain that it's me. So mm-hmm. you eliminate coincidence as you increase independent sites. And um, in this case, it's they're not independent on the Y chromosome. They're all inherited together in one big one. But you get more detailed information about the Y chromosome, and you can eliminate coincidences. And that's what you want to do, and that's why you get as much information as you can. 
So, but in any case, the 35 test was far better than what the labs were using. And with the 35 test, they went to Ancestry.com, as we showed them how to do. And lo and behold, there was a um, hit at 34 out of 35. So and, how did they – so they had access to the, to the data in Ancestry.com or, or – well, I mean, and this is where, where, you know, the Idaho Falls Police Department, I th- and I, uh, I, I credit them in that they're a small department mm-hmm. working on one of their rare murder cases where they already have a conviction and they're using techniques that no one else in the country is using. And mm-hmm. so what they did was they took that data, pretended it was a, a orphan child looking for dad. Okay. They, didn't, they didn't claim this. They didn't do anything false at this point. They, they gotcha. it you could just type it on the web. You didn't have to say who you were. Mm-hmm. So this is the old Ancestry.com Y chromosome database. And um, uh, they got a hit, but the hit was to an anonymous person. And so they called me up, and we worked through the stats. And I said, I forget what I said. I did a you know, back-of-the-envelope calculation. I said, I think you have a better than 50% chance of being within five generations or something like that, based on the mutation rate. You know, you're 34 out of 35. That means somewhere along the way, some man was making a sperm cell and it mutated at one of those sites. How often does that happen at the particular site that they had a difference? Hmm. So in other words, my my sons should have my Y profile at all 35 out of 35. But one time out of whatever, 10 generations or so, I can expect this site to mutate and so not be a match to me. It could happen in my generation. It could happen 10 generations. Right? Right. You know? And so I tried to do an estimate and, and uh, to indicate to them how big a genealogy they're going to have to create. I mean, we're all related, right? If I say, oh, yeah, he's related to uh, this person is related. They want to know, like, well, how many people are we going to have to tap? And um, so I said, we'll start doing the genealogy, you know, and, and uh, so, but they couldn't because they didn't have a name, right? So they didn't even know what the last name was on this. Mm-hmm. Well, they um, decided to get a, um, a, to subpoena the Ancestry.com Y chromosome database to get names of people who did not want their name publicly disclosed. Now, um, there are a lot of things we don't want publicly disclosed that mm-hmm. the police can get through either subpoenas or court orders. Right. Subpoenas, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so go talk to a real lawyer. But the subpoena is the first step in that, right? And so they tried to get an ancestry, uh, as I understand it, and, you know, somebody should check the facts. I think cooperated with that subpoena, gave them the database. They were able to get the last name, and the last name was Ussery. So it was Michael Ussery Sr., and um, he had thrown in some DNA. So they created, without telling Michael Ussery, they created a um, genealogical table of his family based on public records. And, you know, you do this by looking at obituaries and marriage records and all that stuff, baptisms. And you try to draw the family out as far back as you can. So they did that, and they didn't go very far before they thought they found a suspect, a possible person, Michael Usry Jr., who, according to his Facebook page, and this is well in this 48 hours, it's done pretty nicely. Mm-hmm. According to his Facebook page, had been in Idaho, had Idaho friends, and was in Idaho at around the time of the murder, to what they could determine. He also made a movie called Murderobelia, and so it was like, huh, he has an interest in murder. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I, I don't mean to make fun of... Uh, 
again, I, I think what the Idaho Falls police did was pretty, pretty out there, pretty brave mm -hmm. to try to get a profile this way. So they, unfortunately, I think they made a second um, kind of a, 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 you know, tactical error, civil rights error, and that they went to New Orleans and instead of asking Michael Ussery for a sample, uh, explaining what's going on, uh, and instead of uh, maybe getting a discarded cigarette butt from him or a cup or an envelope that he licked, they got a warrant of detention. And um, so he had, a, you know, a cop show up and uh, take him away. And he, he talks about it uh, lots of places you can find him. I, I've gotten to know him uh, a bit. And so uh, he was kind of upset, but he gave him the sample. And he, like his father, matched the 34 out of 35. So another, you know, there was no mutation in that generation. So that um, somehow got to the press. This was a, uh, a sealed court order uh, in New Orleans. And I got a call from the Times-Picayune. That's the first I heard of this. They say, you have a comment about the upcoming arrest in the Angie Dodge mur murder. I said, the upcoming arrest? Like... <laughs> Gosh, you know, you know, either you know something I don't know about or you got this wrong. You know, and I said, here's the detective in charge who I work with, you know, call him. And so then the first thing I did was call the detective and say, what the hell's going on? Like, right. what is, what, you know, what would he, this guy faxed me or mail, emailed me, whatever, a, a, a sealed court order that lists me as one of the experts who, you know, um, supported this. And I scientifically did support it. Right. But I didn't know how this information was being used. So anyway, um, uh, there was a lot of embarrassment. I don't know who brought it to the media. We certainly didn't. And I don't think the Idaho Falls police did. So I don't know who told the media about this or how the media found out. But they found out there was a lot of um, uh, uh, people upset about this. And is it, you know, what kind of infringement is this? And is my data unsafe, etc. And I think those are all legitimate civil rights concerns that need to be mm -hmm. vetted out. Um, my side of it is the science, and the science is solid. And so um, the police then go and um, send the sample off to Jedmatch uh, uh, and Parabon, and they draw up, at some point they, they, um, they release this picture of someone that the, that the computer drew, which I think is kind of garbagey. We knew he had red hair because there was a red pubic hair, you know, and they assume he's a certain age. He looks like a white a white guy, as most of the you know people in that area are. So a young white guy with red hair is what they do. But they also released a statement saying that, uh, let me just see it, uh, that um, the Ussery family um, is, is not involved. And they said, this is what they said, the department, this is from their press release in 2017, this is after Christine's death, the department then took the DNA testing to the next level, snapshot DNA phenotyping kinship testing from Parabon Nanolabs was completed. The test not only evaluated the Y strand, but the familial DNA on both the male side and the female side overlapping to come up with a profile. The report stated that they were, and here's the science, right, the math, mm -hmm. they were 87.63% confident that the unknown DNA from the Angie Dodge crime scene did not match the Ussery family. What does that mean? Well, again, we're all related, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I don't know what that means, but I was still confident 
that the Usri lineage was involved because, you know, DNA is like a cold. You catch it from somebody, right? You get it from mm-hmm. parents. It's unlikely that there is a purely coincidental lineage of 34 out of 35. This Y chromosome is related to the Usri's. So anyway, we so, took a So could, could they at that time test, or maybe they did, test Michael Usri's DNA? They tested it against the pubic hair and against the other DNA? Because we already had, sorry, well, I mean, they, they looked at it. They didn't have okay. to, but they test, they got a profile of Michael Ussery, a Y chromosome profile, and it showed that he was like his dad, 34 out of 35. Now that, that's done all the time with cigarette butts and cups that you get, you know, used during interrogation or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was a little more, you know, brash and the press got involved. So we took a lot of heat. Idaho Coles took a lot of heat, blah, blah, blah. But I still thought we were on the right track. Uh, and the, the other prong of our attack, so we're going, you know, uh, through the police department to get as much testing as we could with the help of Angie, uh, Angie's mom, Carol Dodge. We were trying to get into the courts first by testing the law and then writing the motion that is eventually filed when they eliminate Michael Esri Jr. As soon as that was eliminated, his uh, public defender, John Thomas said, let's file that motion, that DNA motion. You guys wrote. I'm like, great. And, um, uh, and then we were also trying something I hadn't mentioned yet, which is called familial testing. So here's where, you know, if you want to sound like an expert until these terms get changed again, familial testing means we're going to look for a family member of the evidence of the semen in this case, look for a family member in the convicted offender database. So these are convicts. That's a special database, only the state CODIS software administrator, one person, has the ability to test. Okay. Idaho's, we said to the Idaho State Lab, their CODIS administrator, we think you're allowed to do this, and um, you can look for a relative of this semen in our prison database. We further, the Idaho Innocence Project, contacted the CODIS administrators in California, uh, and I can't remember what other states, but definitely in California, California wrote back and said, yeah, we'll run it against our gigantic database of convicted offenders and look for a relative of this person. They would find a father, son, you know, male cousin. Uh, the software is fantastic. And then you swab everybody and you make sure you have the right connection. And the mm-hmm. person in prison is not the suspect, but you now have a great lead on a last name again and a family. And, um, so some states allow this by statute. Some forbid it by statute. Idaho had no statutory uh, instructions. The lab said no, they wouldn't do it. But the California labs said they would do it if we got a Y chromosome profile, which we eventually did, as I've explained, mm-hmm. and if um, law enforcement would request it. And so we presented that to Idaho Falls Police Department in, gosh, 2012, I think it was. Uh, no, 2000 and 2009. And in 2010, the lab said, no, nah, we're not going to do it here. And Idaho Falls Police never contacted California. Now, the reason I bring this up is that Brian Drips lived in California for a while. The man who's eventually tied to the semen stamp. Mm-hmm. Did he have a relative in prison? You know, he wasn't in the database, the national database anyway. But had we had access back in 2008, 
to the California database. Could this have been solved? I don't know. That's not, you know, that's to be some, some future writer. Can and, and Chris could have been out however many years earlier. Everything, everything. And if, and, and if, if drips is the, uh, you know, he hasn't been convicted, he's been arrested. If he was involved in this and other crimes, maybe that would have come to light. But in any case, um, so, you know, speed things up 2017, we are heading into court on that DNA testing motion because we have finally gotten a hearing, right? 2017. Remember, we started this in 2007. We've right. got through four lawyers now at the project. Now we're up to probably $600,000 worth of, you know, grant money. And Chris was one of our two main cases. And um, uh, we're going to a hearing and, um, then, uh, like a week before our hearing, they decided to have a hearing on a, a, uh, a question about the interrogation, whether all of the tapes had been sent to Chris's defense attorneys. That's called a Brady violation if they didn't give some of the information over. I'm not sure if there was a Brady violation, but we were having a hearing on it. And that was leading up to the DNA hearing, which was the hearing. <laughs> mm-hmm. In my mind, there's no question that's why uh, all these years started moving. And so at that hearing, you know, just before our DNA hearing, the state decides to make Chris an offer. And they had made him a, 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 a not very good offer. Uh, uh, and then they, they made it a little better by saying, okay, no probation. You get out. Time served. And um, uh, we're going to take off the rape charge because, you know, all this DNA stuff. But we're going to keep the murder charge. So Chris is released as a murderer and has a hard time getting a job as you, and has all kinds of troubles. It's just terrible. Uh, and um, he gets out and, you know, but he's free and we go together, uh, bring him to the conference with the exonerees and uh, national meeting. And uh, he and Stacy, his, his wife, who we, Jan and I have become very good friends with, but you know, there is this, shadow hanging over him and he'll never see any compensation of course but more important to to chris and other people in his position is his name is associated with murder even though he's been on national television at this point we've we've explained the story through dateline uh and some other venues and um then uh we have so as part of that agreement the only thing i asked for uh, in that agreement was, I want a sample of the semen DNA for me. <laughs> I want to send it to um, my colleagues who work in an ancient DNA lab that specializes in getting maximum amounts of information from Neanderthal DNA. I want the maximal amount of information. This is the last sample uh, that I knew of that was left. And so the, 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 with the agreement of the prosecutor, we got that in the court order was released. So I had it sent off. And then the state or the... Um, I know false police had sent um, DNA uh, to Parabon, as I had said, uh, Parabon Nanolabs, uh, and the people who helped draw that picture. And and C.C. Moore started working with them. She is a genealogist. And um, so she started working with them as well. She knew about our work, finding the Usri last name. And her and her team of volunteers um, found out that in the Ussery line, there was one mysterious son who's mentioned in a obituary that doesn't show up in any other records. And um, that son doesn't show up because the mother um, marries a man named Ussery, but divorces him, moves to Idaho, 
and gives the son the last name Drips. And that is Brian Drips. Who is Brian Drips? He's been arrested in this case finally. He lived across from Angie Dodge. He was quite across, whereas if you are in Angie Dodge's apartment up in her bedroom, you can look out the window and see his house. He could have looked into the, her window. And maybe that happened. I don't know. Some of the, the profilers speculated it could have been somebody who had watched her. I don't really believe in profilers, but I got to give him credit for this. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, um, he lived across the street. He was questioned. We actually have the record of his questioning by the police shortly after the murder. And they asked him, where were you on that night when Andrew Dodge was murdered? Mm-hmm. And he says uh, something like, this is through the uh, uh, press I have this, but he says something like, um, I was really drunk I don't remember. I got home, I think he says 11 o'clock. I can't remember. And then I went out again, and I don't remember. Now, she's killed at 2 a.m. He says, I think, I think he says, according to, you know, check my facts, but I think he says he comes back around 4 a.m. She's killed at 2 a.m. They know that. Mm-hmm. They never get a DNA sample from him. He lives across the street. He can't remember where he was. Just don't even question the story. Just, oh, okay, you don't remember. No problem. And it's really easy. You know, I shouldn't do this. And I, you, have to, uh, you know, I, I should retract my laughter at this. Uh, it's post, you know, it's post hoc. It's so easy for me to say. But the point is they got, you know, back in, in uh, gosh, this happened in 96. Uh, they did DNA on... I don't know, 60, 80 people. I keep hearing the number go up. I remember reviewing like 40 samples they tested. Mm-hmm. It was really expensive and hard to do back then. Um, and they didn't, they missed drips for whatever reason. He moves out of state. They lose track of him. He watches the Dateline program, apparently. Uh, that's the, the word that I heard. Uh, and he um, doesn't... Uh, say anything to anybody, obviously. They match him up through C.C. Moore and Parabon's work, and they get a discarded cigarette butt from him on the second try, I think. And it's a very dramatic story. They tell it on uh, the 48-hour show. Anyway, they get a hit, and and uh, they get a match to him. So they arrest him. I get a call from Chris in May of this year saying, uh, there's a hearing. They, uh, they Looks like they got the guy. I was like, well, they got, they got the guy. They have a match. He's like, yeah. And uh, I said, well, do we know who he is or anything? And no. And then I get a call from the press. Do I know anything about a guy named Drips? I guess they somehow put it together. I'm like, no, I don't know anything about a guy named Drips. And um, the, the scary thing, and I think, you know, I don't, I don't know who the protocol officer is in charge of this who missed it. They don't tell Chris what's going to happen at this little they, they call it press conference, not here. They call mm-hmm. it press conference to announce this. They have C.C. Moore there. They have Carol Dodge there, Carol's brother, uh, uh, Carol's son, and the police chief. And they all go through this thing and explain that there's been an arrest and how they did it. And, you know, they uh, talk about Angie, of course. Nothing is said about Chris. I'm sitting in the room with Chris, and I'm like, are they going to arrest him? You know, did this guy say he's his accomplice? Is this guy trying to save his neck by giving them, you know, information they would like to hear that they never made a mistake? I have no idea what's going to happen. Chris has no idea what's going to happen. This is so unfair. And finally, somebody from the press, the first question from the press after this 20 minutes or so press conference, and it's all on the web, you can watch it, is, 
they asked the sheriff, do you, what about Chris Tapp? Do you think he's owed some sort of apology? And they say, well, we'll get to Chris uh, uh, in, in a week or so, I think they said. And of course, it's a couple of months, and I think they were checking Drips' story, et cetera, et cetera. But finally, we get to the point, and at this point, the, the Innocence Project out of New York is also involved, which is great because they have the experience of many, many mm-hmm. legal experience. I, I have a lot of experience with exonerations, but not legal. And, uh, and so um, I think it is, it is very clear that the only one who knows what's, might know what's going on is Peter Neufeld, who co-founded the Innocence Project. And, and he helps explain to everybody involved, including, I think, the prosecutor, uh, uh, what these kind of um, court proceedings look like, where you, where you exonerate somebody. And so Chris was fully exonerated with a statement that he's innocent. And that's what he wanted. And, you know, that was an amazing, amazing day. Um, uh, and I think different people have, you know, different reasons to be uh, uh, happy or, uh, you know, in the case of Drips' family, shocked, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but that was, that was, you know, one of the most amazing days. You don't often, in, in my work with the innocence movement, I, you know, over 20 years, I, it's not often that I get to be in a courtroom where someone's freed, and it's out of those, probably one in five, one in ten, do you find anything about the actual perpetrator. Right. So um, this was, it was just really exciting. Now, I don't know that Drips is the actual perpetrator. He matches the DNA. He's got to have a trial. And, and so I should be more careful in how I say this, with, the, with a new suspect. And somebody who says, who, the, according to the press release, according to the police statements, I haven't heard Brian Drips' confession. He said at some point, yes, I did it. I acted alone. Done. Uh, I think, you know, until trial. So that's the story, you know, and uh, Chris and I are really incredible story. Yeah. And now of course, you know, it's, it's, it's jumping all over the press. I had a, a, a Irish barrister come work with us for the summer. She had known about Chris Tapp's case from Dublin and was very excited to meet him. And this, this story has really gone all over the world. Part of it is because Carol Dodge, the victim's mother worked so hard to get DNA testing. She, you know, we would, we would come up with what ought to be tested. I think she probably came up with some of the suggestions herself from what she read. And then we'd go to the police and I'd write letters or talk to the officers. And then we'd put, you know, we'd write uh, motions for the court. But I think that story has really captured the public's imagination. So, so did Carol Dodge from, from some point, she believe that, that Chris was not the, the perpetrator or... Yeah, so I mean, you know, um, when we took up the case, what happened was, you know, on this phone next to me, it's end of the day, uh, and I go through my messages, you know, da, 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 and then I hear, I get this message, hello, I'm Carol Dodge, I'd like to speak with Greg Hampton, and I was like, okay, so I write down the number, and I'm making my calls, and I start dialing the number, and as it's ringing, I look down, and I'm like, Carol Dodge, hmm. I was like, oh my God, is that? the victim's family member in this Chris Tapp case I'm working on. So she answers. I was going to hang up when I realized it might be a victim because I don't even know if I'm allowed to talk to people. Right. You know, I'm, I, I, you know, I, I, uh, it's unusual to say the least. And so, um, but I figure if I hang up, it'll be traced back to my number. I'm making prank calls to a victim's mother, you know, and, and so 
couple of heartbeats to uh, to get my head together and just uh, share my my sadness with her that she lost her daughter. And what she said to me, and I said, you know, I'm working with Chris Tab. I said, so I don't know what I can do for you, but I'm, uh, you know, I work for the taxpayers, and I'll explain DNA to you like I would to anybody. And she said, I just want to know, you know, who killed my daughter? What happened? And she said, you know, she said they don't, they don't know what happened. And so I said, well, I'm happy to, you know, tell, explain to you what I would suggest to the police to do, and that's. Mm-hmm. Really, how I got involved with the police is through Carol. <laughs> she gave me their numbers. I called them, and um, we started working with the police. And that was a nightmare for the lawyers that I work with. They're like, "Well, you know, what do they want you to sign?" And, this, and, and they talked about having me sign the things, but they never did. We just uh, we worked together, and, uh, even though they were working. I, I'm very sure to try to prove Chris Tapp did it, that this was some friend of his that left this DNA and they did it together. And I was working to show that, no, somebody did it alone. Chris wasn't involved. But because we were both dealing with trying to get the same evidence tested and the prosecutor didn't, wasn't interested, uh, I needed somebody who, who would work with me. And so I was happy to work with them. Uh, again, the, the lawyers went into conniptions when they heard I was working with the police, but uh, you know, these are the, this is the same agency that used the uh, the polygraph as a rubber hose to beat Chris. Right, so. Greg. This is a this incredible story. Oh, um, thanks. thanks for being so gracious with your time. I think I said a half hour, and here we are, forty five minutes later. Well, edit to your hearts. You know, just don't make it sound like I'm guilty. Right? Oh no, I'm leaving it <laughs> leaving it all all in all in. But uh, just before I before I let you go, yeah. um, if you could just share with my audience. There's any way that that they can help out uh, the Idaho Innocence Project, or I mean, is is there? Do yeah, they take donations, or um, you know, of course, uh, we 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 live on donations. So the university doesn't give us anything except a room, uh, uh, two rooms, which is very nice of them. Uh, so we live on donations. They can go to the Idaho Innocence Project on Facebook or the Idaho Innocence Project on Google. Uh, just make sure it's the Idaho Innocence Project. I think Google will drive you to uh, probably the mothership, the Innocence the Project in New York. And if that's where you want to give your money, please do. They're a great organization. But if you want to support the Idaho Innocence Project, just make sure it's uh, tax deductible through the University Foundation. Uh, they'll just ask you for your name and address and stuff. Sorry that you have to type all that in. Um, uh, in terms of, you know, if there are lawyers involved, we do have pro bono lawyers who work with us. Um, I'm always looking for, you know, really good writers to do content for us for, um, the, the website and all, mostly it's just me putting stuff up on Facebook. Mm-hmm. So that kind of thing we, we can, we, we can use. And the other thing is, um, really to start studying, um, the, the justice system, instead of at just an emotional level, which is, I think, how a lot of us got involved at first, right. study the system. Because uh, this is just a system. There are no bad people in it, you know, except maybe the worst of the, <laughs> the people who were locked up. But um, the errors are made for the same um, uh, reasons that errors are made by Boeing or the Challenger disaster, or the healthcare.gov website that failed. These are systems, and there are pressures on systems to always 
tend toward the failure point. So economic pressures, competition pressures, everybody wants their system to operate at its maximum capacity. And um, until there are accidents, enough accidents, we don't push back toward a more reasonable operating error. And I think we need that pushback in the criminal justice system. Um, but there's no fix. There is only monitoring you know, watching what we call resilience, I guess, in systems theory. You have to watch the system from out, get outsiders to watch. I'd rather have, you know, a um, hunter-gatherer tribe, tribal person evaluate our justice system than the Supreme Court of the United States. Because the Supreme Court of the United States is embedded in the system. And no system can know its own prejudice. It's impossible. You have to have outsiders. So the further outside you can go, the, the less baloney people will be able to foist on it. You know, we have like the, the uh, crime lab directors are the ones who inspect the crime labs. <laughs> mm-hmm. That might not be the best people to ask. <laughs> yeah. that's, a good, that's a really good point. I never thought about it that way. But when someone, when someone builds a computer program, yeah. you don't have that same person Check it for no. bugs. You give it to, to someone else. To, yeah. And to if you really it. want good advice, if you really want the best honest critique, go to a disgruntled ex-lover. <laughs> you know, go to somebody who is going to tell you exactly what your flaws are and then some, right? You have to filter out. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you, you, you really want somebody who has left the system. It's okay if they've left the system, but if they're in the system, no, there's no way that they can detect the flaws and certainly not the prejudices, which they're part of, which I'm part of. So I don't think all of these are slam dunks. When I, when I joke about what the Idaho Falls police did, that's, that's inappropriate. And I apologize. They were hardworking, honest people who were trying to do what they were trying to do according to the values they understood. Now those values may have been bad values taught to them by their trainers. by the department itself. The department itself could have had corrupt values. Because you do things ethically within your own system, if the system is corrupt, you're corrupt. And the interrogation of Chris Tapp was corrupt. There's no question. I haven't I haven't met anybody who does interrogations except the guy who did the polygraph. <laughs> For Chris Tapp, he's the only polygraph examiner I know who says that was a legit polygraph. And um, we need people outside of the system. And that you know, includes for me, too. I have to have, that's why we have peer review, anonymous peer review of anything I try to publish. And mm-hmm. believe me, they're harsh. They're good and harsh, and they're my best, best critics. Anyway. Well, I think that's an excellent point. Thanks. And uh, Greg, critique of your show. You're you're an excellent host. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, apparently, I need to get a critique from like a, an ex girlfriend or something. Yeah, I'm sure they'll write it now if they're watching <laughs> from, a, from a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> All right, Doctor Hipikian, thank you so much for coming on the show and being so generous with your time. And uh, yeah, this this has been you know I I know my audience is going to love this, and I just want to encourage everybody to go to the Idaho Innocence Project, check it out, donate, see how you can get involved. Thanks. Come visit the lab. We can do a show from here if you want. Maybe I will. All right. All right. Thanks. See you soon. Bye-bye. Hope you guys enjoyed that uh, conversation, that interview with Greg Hampikian. He's a fascinating, fascinating guy and a really nice guy too. Um, I really enjoyed getting to speak with him today. 
We really stayed focused. We really stayed focused on the Chris Tapp case, which I think is such such a fascinating and important case, and it brought up a lot of issues. Um, we could have talked about a lot of different things. Um, I had a list of questions, which is often the case, um, especially when I have a really good interview. Um, I will always create a list of questions before any interview. And when I have a really good one, I don't ask any questions on the list because it's just, I'm just sort of going with it and uh, just sort of asking questions as I go along. So maybe we'll have Greg on um, down the road at some point. Just a fascinating guy. And I think it's so interesting, the points he brings up related to privacy. Um, You know, it's pretty amazing you know, I myself have not submitted my uh, my DNA to any sites like Ancestry.com or anything like that. And it's, you know, I, I just feel a little uneasy about it. It's not like I'm worried that I'm going to get implicated in some sort of crime or something. But I think a lot of people have a fear that that DNA is out there. It gets in a database. The government can grab it and do whatever they want with it. But the truth of the matter is, as Greg sort of showed today, um, if anybody really in your family lineage has already done that, then you're already exposed uh, to a certain degree uh, in government databases and, and whatnot. They, they can uh, find out what they need to about you um, if you were to be, commit a crime or something like that, or for some reason um, be implicated by the government. Even if you're an innocent person, it, it could happen. They could track you down by your, by, uh, your family's DNA or you know, somebody related to you. So crazy stuff, crazy times, definitely privacy issues there. I have no idea how any of those privacy issues will ever be solved. I really don't think they will be. Um, but DNA is so fascinating. And I did see an article a couple days ago. I forget what city it was in, but it was a pretty major uh, city in the United States that had found thousands of rape kits they were they did an internal audit and they thought they had like a hundred or so that they hadn't processed. They had thousands of them. And with the advances in DNA, they will be able now to process those rape kits and get better results, more accurate results to find um, the perpetrators of those crimes uh, more efficiently and more quickly and by spending less money and hopefully getting uh, bringing these people to justice and making life safer for everyone else. Because at the end of the day, you have, if you have real violent criminals who have committed these violent acts, then uh, who knows what else they're doing out there. So, you know, just the, the sky is the limit when it comes to, uh, comes to DNA and genealogy and how it ties into the criminal justice system. There are privacy fears, and I think a good show would be to do a deep dive into those at some point. So I will look for a guest on that topic. And if you have any ideas, of course, reach out to me. You can shoot me an email, felonyfriday at lionsofliberty.com. Hit me up on Twitter or Instagram, uh, at John Odermatt. Of course, uh, the Lions of Liberty Forum is also a good place, which is on Facebook. You can find it by punching Lions of Liberty Forum in the uh, the old Facebook, Facebook search bar. It'll pop up. You can click join, and we'll let you in as long as you look like a real person. So reach out to me. Give me your ideas, your thoughts, your criticisms, whatever. I don't care. I just am happy you are listening and engaged and uh, you care about this extremely important topic. So on that note, please share this show. If you enjoyed it, rate, review the Lions of Liberty podcast wherever you're listening uh, to today's show. That's it, guys. I don't have anything else. I just want to 
wish you all a happy Thanksgiving next week. I won't talk to you until next Friday, which will be the day after Thanksgiving. So enjoy your your lead up to Thanksgiving with your family and friends around. And hopefully everyone has safe travels to their destination. And that's it, guys. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.